Good morning, church. If we haven't met yet, my name is Sam. I'm the church planting resident here at Country Bible. It's a blessing to be with you guys today. Some of you know, uh, some of you who I've had the great opportunity to speak with, that my path to get here was, well, it's kind of bizarre, if we're being completely honest, because I spent the first 10 years of my adult career life uh, as a outdoor guide, outdoor educator, survival instructor, which it doesn't necessarily lay flat against the role of pastor. We're both kind of survival instructors, but in different ways. Uh, and to become a survival instructor or an expedition leader, you have to go to a trade school. They're weird, but they have schools like that that will just teach you how to guide people in the wilderness. And I went to one such school. I googled survival college and I found it and I went there. And after the first year, you sort of pass the program and then I, you can come on after that as a teacher's assistant. And I really enjoyed being there serving as a teacher's assistant. And we had a saying among the teacher's assistants when it came to rules. We said that rules have reasons. And usually the reason for your rule was far more significant than the rule may appear just as you read it plainly. This can be really, really true when it comes to campgrounds and truck stops and things like that. Take a minute and look at all the rules they have posted there, and some of them probably have hilarious stories. But one of the rules we had uh, in the world of specifically canoe trip guiding was that if someone tied their canoe to the trailer using an incorrect knot, they had to use a red canoe that day. I see what you're thinking, that makes no sense. But it does, if you know the reason for the rule. So the reason for the rule was this. If a person does not listen to the instruction of how to tie the canoe onto the trailer, they're probably not gonna listen very well to your instructions while you're trying to navigate a set of rapids in a remote area on a river. So the person who doesn't tie the correct knot is probably gonna capsize their canoe faster. And when they inevitably do, it's a lot easier to find a red canoe against a green landscape than a green canoe against a green landscape. And what we found is you find the red canoe, you can usually find the person who was in the canoe, who is far more precious. And so it worked out, wrong knot, red canoe, we find you, everyone's safe, and a rule that doesn't seem significant at first is somewhat significant in the end of things. And we had a secondary rule that is when you did fall in, you had to come up out of the water and say, nope, there's no trout here. We've got to keep paddling another five miles, see if they have more trout. Um, the passage that we're reading today is a set of rules, at least for the first three verses, but the reason behind those rules is significant and divine and amazing. If you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Today we're going to be in verses 15 through 20.
All right, Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So broadly speaking, this passage is laying out a system for church discipline. And you might be asking, what is church discipline. It's actually a, a rare thing that church discipline would be discussed in a church. You're sitting in one of the, the few churches these days that actually talks about these types of things, at least from the pulpit. Many churches, I assume, avoid these topics because when you hear the words church discipline, let's be honest, it sounds a little bit culty. Does it not? Cult expert Creed Bratton once said, of cults. You make more money as a leader, but you have more fun as a follower. I wouldn't know. I've never been in a cult. But church discipline, I just want to establish off the bat, it's not that. It's not culty. It's not weird. But what is it? What is church discipline at its core? God's desire for us within the church is unity with our fellow believers and with him. And he's always created a pathway for us to maintain that unity. And that pathway is church discipline. The first three verses of the passage deal with two things. First, taming the sinful tongue. And second, restoring a sinful brother. And of course, we could substitute, some of your Bibles do substitute, they say brother or sister. It's talking about all people within the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. But the first three verses here, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This gives us a framework to work off of, a framework to live by. See, because fallible people, Christ comes to us as we are fallible, we need a framework like this in order to function in everyday life. And he knew that. And what happens when we don't have any sort of framework for how we decide these types of things or how we place judgment on people. Well, do you guys remember the year of 2020? I like to think of 2020 as the year of the expert. It started with fun experts and then it got to not fun 
experts. Like, remember there was a phase where we all got to become experts on banana bread and gardening, and then it was really weird because people started Googling, like, how expensive are tigers at the same time. People were getting stimulus checks. And then it got much, much deeper, right? People were having really difficult conversations, and conversations might be generous. Arguments, um, I mean, brawling, yelling, disagreements everywhere in real life and social media, everywhere. It was just pandemonium. People were becoming experts overnight on racial reconciliation and on uh, criminal justice reform and on virology. And it just became a madhouse for a while, didn't it? It was a terrible, terrible time to see what people do in crisis. And the saddest part about 2020 for me, other than the, the death was extremely sad, the, the everything terrible that was happening was very sad, but it really broke my heart to view what was happening in the church at that time. A lot of churches closed down in 2020 and thereafter, and it wasn't all because of the mandated shutdowns that were enforced. A lot of it was because either congregations broke apart, they weren't, they weren't following this framework, they were judging each other, they were gossiping, they were being rude to each other, they weren't following this. Some of it is because they were attacking their pastors who were just trying to do their best. I, uh, I had a conversation with a pastor a couple months ago talking about, wow, man, how did you get through the pandemic? And he's in a rather controversial area of the country during this time. And he said, Sam, I have no idea. I was called uh, a heretic. I was called uh, a zealot. I was called a Democrat. I was called a Republican. I was called everything. It was a great time of brokenness in the church. You heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never harm me. Well, it's not what the scriptures say. In fact, when we're looking at this issue, this particular part of Matthew chapter 18, I think the best person who's ever preached on this maybe would be the Apostle James. If you would, would you turn with me for a moment just to James chapter 3? James sums this up far better than I can. So James chapter 3, taming the tongue. It starts with, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Able to also bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, 
and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curses. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of his wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And I want us to pay special attention to verse 17 and 18. The wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I don't think a better explanation of the purpose of this text exists anywhere. That is what these commands are for. The process that's laid out here is a deliberate action for our good. It slows down and it guides the tongue away from sin. This act of going directly to your brother shines light into the darkness of sin. It kills bitterness and it kills gossip. And let's be honest here for a moment. Can we just, can we raise our hands if you've ever sinned against a brother or sister in Christ? I'm going to raise my hand. This is not as an example. This is, I'm raising my hand because I've done this before. Everyone has, but not everyone's sin has been dealt with in the way this passage wants us to deal with it. You might think it's easier to just gossip. It is easier. So it begs the question for us, why would anyone not? Like my sin has not been dealt with gracefully in all situations by members of certain churches. So why should I do this? Why should I slow down my tongue? Why should I submit myself to these rules when I don't think it'll even be done to me? Well, we do have an example of when this has happened, and it's happened perfectly. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, while we were in our sin, while we had sinned against him, came down to us directly. He came down to us in our sins. He lived amongst us. He loved us. He helped to teach us. He suffered amongst us. He took our sins upon himself when he died on the cross and he rose victoriously three days later and he ascended to the heavens to sit at the right hand of the Father. And whenever we are sinned against and we think, you know what? It's easier just to gossip. 
It's easier just to tell other people. I'll get that instant sympathy. It'll make me feel better right away. What we have to remember is that we will never go further down to meet our brother in their sin than Christ came to us to meet us in ours. This passage tells us, it commands us really to pursue restoration always and to only put someone out of fellowship after every measure of restoration has been rejected by the sinful brother. And it's interesting when we look at the last line, even that, I mean, even that line, I'll turn back to it, but I mean, when it says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Of course, a Gentile is someone who's not of your faith, and maybe a tax collector is someone who has sort of disgraced your covenant or disgraced your belief. Even when we do that, it still beckons for restoration. Sometimes, maybe when we feel God is distant from us, it's really him wanting us to pull closer to him. It's still a pathway to unity. Maybe someone is so deeply in their sins that they won't realize their sin until this step takes place, until they're disfellowshipped from a body of believers. Well, the next couple of verses deal with something that works alongside the first three when it comes to uh, church discipline, but it's the necessary step that is authority within the church. So as Jesus is talking here, he's not talking to this large mixed audience of, um, of Pharisees and of uh, sinners. He's talking to the apostles or the disciples at this time, and he's giving them authority to work through his framework for church discipline. And you might be thinking, Sam, we do not have apostles to this day. At least we don't have the, the big A apostles. We might have someone who starts great movements for the work of Christ, but we don't have, we don't have these guys anymore. Maybe some of our elders, this is a cheap one, ready? Maybe some of our elders are old enough to have met Jesus, but they didn't. As a cheap one, I'm sorry. But that authority, that authority that Christ is giving here to the apostles, that was handed down within the New Testament to the elders of the church. So the elders hold this authority to help us navigate the sometimes difficult process of church discipline. But there's also another element that we see. If we reverse course, if we go back to uh, the previous three verses, well, we see that the final step of church discipline involves the entirety of a church. This is one of the reasons that we love church membership, because it gives the work of Christ to the body itself. It sort of gets rid of this threat that we might have of, you know, someone sort of trying to take the reins of a church themselves and steer it in the wrong direction. No, the whole church has to be brought into the equation. One of the reasons we like membership is it tells us who this church is. I mean, I, I almost feel like this verse here was given to us by Christ, uh, totally knowing what the church was going to be like today. 
totally knowing that we have people in churches sometimes who are like, well, you know, that's Jeffy Magoo. He comes in here because he likes the worship. And that's Jeremy over there. Jeremy comes in because he likes uh, the preaching sometimes. But he goes to Berean every third week because they they have like a dinner afterwards. He knew we were going to get into that sometime. Maybe, and those aren't real names, by the way, if your name is is those. I'm not talking about real people. Um, The members of your church, who are the members, the body, the people who commune together have been affirmed by the elders to be a part of your church body. It keeps authority out of the wrong hands. And members have a God-given authority to work towards restoration and to protect the integrity of the church through disfellowship if unrepentant sin arises. Well, and then we come to the point, this last verse that we're looking at today. Verse 20. Very common. I'm, I'm sure everyone has heard this verse before, at least probably. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus is not bound by flesh like we are. Jesus is among us today, right now, within the church, on your drive home, where you eat, where you sleep, Jesus is there. So he is omnipresent, just as God is. But then you start to ask the question, so God is omnipresent. How can he he say, well, now I'm with you? Wasn't he always with us? Wasn't, Wasn't he always with us? I think there's a quote here by a guy named Michael Horton. It's the study we're doing with some of our church plant guys right now, Michael Horton's study. And he sums it up really well in this sentence. He writes, The key is to find him where he has promised to find us. In the places that he specifically identifies as the site of his presence in blessing rather than than judgment. When we pursue unity through the person of Jesus Christ, he meets us in that unity, in a profound reunion. We come together in unity. You, your brothers, your sisters, are restored from the separation of sin and Jesus Christ all together, and we get a glimpse of what it must have been like to fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden. We get a taste of it. We get a glimpse of remembrance. We're taking the Lord's Supper today. During that time, we get to remember. We get to be with Christ in remembering what he did on the cross for us, for our sins. And in unity, in a unified church, we also get a glimpse into what it will be like one day when Christ returns, when there is a new heaven, when there is a new earth, when all things have been restored for his glory. And I'm doing all this talking about unity, where there's also an understanding that's strong and I think is good within the current Uh, evangelical 
space, and it has been for the last probably uh, 30 or 40 years, about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, is a unified relationship better than a personal relationship? That's not the question to necessarily be asking, because we all need to know the Lord personally, and he knows us personally and loves us personally. And there's no way to look at the scriptures and to say that you shouldn't be alone with God. It is a a paramount and wonderful thing for every single Christian who exists. But it's really important to know that when we go to Christ, when we are saved, when we form a personal relationship with him, he takes that personal relationship with us and we cherish it and he cherishes it and he grows it. It becomes more. When we bring other believers into fellowship with us, there is a special presence and power in Christian unity. Being an outdoor guy myself, I often get people coming up to me and saying, this is mostly when I'm not in a church setting, they will say, you know what? The tree stand is my sanctuary. I'm never more connected with God than when I'm sitting up there on a Sunday morning. It's, it's where I see God, you know. We all, we're all different. That's where I connect with God. And I get it. I get it. There's a lot of people you're going to see as you read through the book of Acts in this upcoming series who did not know there's a tree stand option for church. <laughs> like there's a bunch of martyrs in heaven who like didn't get the message, didn't get the memo that like, oh, we had no idea there was a tree stand option. And then I also get asked, Sam, like, isn't it just so good? Don't you feel most alive when you're alone in nature with God? And I have to say, kind of. Kind of. It's an amazing thing to see the glory of God through his creation. I mean, it's awesome. Some of you guys have been on trips this summer. Some of you guys have seen great mountain peaks or oceans. You've, you've seen the glory of God through his creation. And I've spent a heck of a lot of time alone in that. And I've had a wonderful sort of community with the Lord in that. But I can tell you right now, I have had relationships that are unified with my brothers and sisters in Christ in this room here right now now that are far better than those times where I've been away in some scenic location praying all by myself. He gives us that personal relationship and we cherish that personal relationship, but he doesn't leave us there. When it comes to union with Christ, it always just gets better and better and better the closer we get to reflecting his body in ourselves. Finally, I want to sort of summarize and make one additional statement on this passage sort of as 
a whole. Because we start off, we have, we have verses of practical instruction that make a lot of sense. Then we have, you know, authority, which is like, great, that makes sense. And then we have here, we talk about unity in Christ. And I'd like to think, really, if you took off all these verses of, of uh, step one, step two, step three, step four, here's how our authority structure is, this is what it looks like, and if you wrote that down on a piece of paper and you took it out to a public place and you showed it to people, they would look at it and they would say, you know what, that makes sense. Someone has done a lot of thinking about that. And to anyone taking a pragmatic view of wisdom, it would appear wise all on its own, without any extra. But you can find different types of pragmatic wisdom everywhere. I mean, all over the world, can't you? We have this game we like to play. I don't know if any of you have played this before, but it's called Wise and Otherwise. It's a board game. And what it is is a game where you take ancient proverbs from all over the world. I mean, they have hundreds and hundreds of these little sayings from all over the world of how people in certain cultures have lived their lives and lived under these proverbs. And here's how you play. You draw a card, and it has the start of a a proverb in it. Um, For example, there's an old Irish saying, when the potatoes are ripe, Dot, dot, dot. That's not legitimate. I'm just making one up. When the potatoes are ripe, dot, dot, dot. And then on the back of the card, it gives you the actual ending of that statement, the wise statement or the the proverb. But everyone around the table comes up with their own ending to it. And some people just try to find a silly one to goof off, but a lot of people are trying to win. You're competitive people that you're playing with. And they, in a matter of 10 or 15 seconds, they come up with a, I'm using these air quotes a lot for those who are listening to the the audio of this. Those who are coming up with their own proverbs, some of them sound legitimate. Like they sound wise. You're like, wow, Uncle Stu is spewing some wisdom right now at the dinner table to this Irish proverb that doesn't exist. Many people are wise. There's lots of wisdom in this world. But no one outside of Jesus offers supernatural unity along with that wisdom. Anyone can craft a phrase or a statement that is clever or wise enough to intrigue or captivate other people. But if you follow any other wise statements to where they lead, you'll find that none of them, not one, leads to deeper unity with the God of all creation. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are so thankful for you, for who you are, for everything that you do for us on a daily basis. Father, we are so blessed by your presence. We are blessed to know that we don't have a distant God. We don't have a God who is way off doing his own thing. We have a God who is present with us. We have a God who is personal to us. And we have a God who gives us specific instructions, who loves us so much that he sent his son to come down, 
to give us these instructions that we might be closer and more unified in him. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.